church family, would you be seated? And as you are, would you take your copy of God's word and turn to Genesis chapter one? Uh, We will pick up here in a few moments in the second verse uh, where we left uh, last week. I want to begin by wishing you a uh, happy 4th of July. Hopefully you and your family had a good uh, Independence Day. Definitely a different one, right? Uh, one that is, um, is not necessarily uh, normal. Uh, and we recognize that there are still many joining us online. Uh, because it's uh, Independence Day, we have families traveling. We have those who are uh, still taking precautions and staying home and not being in uh, large groups. And then... Um, uh, all of our active duty Navy people are not allowed to be here uh, right now. And so uh, we're, for whatever reason you're watching with us online, we want you to know that we're grateful uh, that you've uh, joined in with us, if not in person, at least in spirit, and we miss you and love you. Um, for those that are here, I would invite you now to uh, stand with me this morning as uh, I am, for the sake of time, because we are in um, from verses 2 to 25 this morning, uh, I'm just going to read uh, verses 2 through the first day. So verse 2 down through verse 5. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful this morning to live in a free land where we can gather where the church of God is free to proclaim the good news of Jesus. We pray, God, that that would forever be so. We pray for that same freedom to come to persecuted brothers and sisters around the world, that they too would be free to worship, to share the good news of Jesus without fear of persecution. We pray, God, now as we open your word and we think again this week back to the beginning, that we would hold tightly that which the scriptures intend for us to hold tightly, and that we would think about those things which we so often will elevate to a level of importance to which it does not belong, that, that we would rightly divide the word of God. Help me to do that to not inject my own understanding or opinion over what the scripture is clearly trying to teach us. Thank you, God, that you made a good world for us to live in. And thank you that you are redeeming it as you redeem us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. If you're with us here in the room this morning or 
uh, are watching online and you missed last week, I would encourage you to go back to our website. You can go to the sermon page at nansenriver.com and watch last week's sermon. It's going to be important as it serves as an introduction, not just to this first section, which we're calling uh, the pattern in our series, uh, our origin series through uh, the entire book of Genesis, but it really serves as an introduction to the entire book, that God is the creator of the heavens and the earth, and that this is his story and not ours. That is of first importance, that this is not an accident, that God intentionally created and God is still working within his creation to redeem, to bring us into right relationship with him and into the image of his son, Jesus. That story all begins in Genesis 1.1. What we pick up today is what we could call the creation account proper. As Moses writing to Israel on their way out of Egypt, and I stressed last week that that original audience was important, and and we're going to put ourselves again this week into the place of that original audience, because I think it helps us to best understand this text. But Moses provides a description for them of the one true God who created everything, And does so in a way that we can understand it and that we can hide it in our hearts and believe that it is true. We're not going to get through the entire creation account this week. We're really going to cover the first five and a half days. So through the first part of day six, uh, we'll save for next week uh, the creation of man and woman, human beings as the crowning work of God's creation created in the image of him. But this chapter, it's important for us to recognize, is one of the most highly debated chapters in the entire Bible. And this is not new. Varied understandings of the creation story have existed before Christianity itself existed. Jewish scholars debated how we were to understand and read the first chapter of the Bible And after Jesus establishes the New Testament church, that debate continues. Early church fathers wrote often about the understanding of creation from varying perspectives and different points of view. Reformers in the 1500s did the same. They challenged the conventional wisdom of the day and its understanding of creation, but from differing opinions. And today... Modern scholars, faithful to the word of God, that is an important point, faithful to the word of God, who believe that the Bible is the inerrant word of God as we as a church affirm, have, a, have different understandings of how we are to read Genesis 1. Every month as we meet as elders of our congregation, we talk about the sermons that I have preached and the sermons that I'm going to be preaching over the next several weeks. And sometimes those conversations are quick, and at other times they are a little more lengthy. And this last month when we were talking about me preaching in Genesis 1, I wanted to ask some very clear and probing questions of our elders because I wanted to be clear about what we as a church believe, corporately what we say we believe, 
And, and then there are times that I preach and it's me speaking. And I think most of you in here have been here long enough to, to notice the difference that when I speak for the elders, I use we. And when I speak for me, I say I. And you kind of picked up on that. And I, and I said, I want to know what we consider to be orthodox and, and, of, and of importance and that we would affirm together as a church and then what we would hold loosely and, and say that there could be varied opinions of this and varied understandings uh, within our congregation and yet we wouldn't die upon that hill. And so it was a lively discussion and an interesting one and one that has influenced my sermon today. And so here's what I want you to understand from the men who lead this congregation uh, towards what we hope to be a right understanding of the Bible. We consider it of first importance that God, the one true living God, is the creator of the world. That this is not an accident, that this is intentional. That he made everything out of nothing. That that is what is being exalted as the first importance here in Genesis 1. But it is important for our congregation. It's important that you hear this from our elders. We probably, if we were to, the eight men who serve as elders of our church, were to sit and to talk extensively about this subject, we would probably not agree on how we approach the specific days of creation, the age of the earth, the length of those days. And if we can be in unity together as the pastors who lead this church, then surely we as a congregation can be in unity together. And I, and I intended originally several weeks ago when we had that conversation, I was going to leave that right there and I was simply going to preach Genesis 1 of that which was first important, those first order things that are provided here. And one of our elders spoke up and he said, Pastor, you, you need to preach your conviction on this text. That the church is going to want to know what you believe to be true, and they're smart enough to know those things that we're going to hold tightly and the things that we're going to hold loosely. And I, I took that to heart, and so it changed the way uh, that I began to approach this sermon. So there are going to be things that I say today, and I'm going to try to make sure that I make these abundantly clear, that, that I think are first order, if you've been through our connect class, first order doctrines. And then there are things that are going to be third order, meaning they are tertiary. They're, they're, they're not intended to divide us, but we should have a conviction about what we believe every word of the Bible says as to the best of our ability. When we approach the first chapter of Genesis, it's important to recognize that this is narrative. This is not poetry. There are some who have tried to paint Genesis 1 as being poetic. It does contain um, some language that lends itself better to poetry, but it is missing the majority of the markers that set ancient Hebrew poetry apart from prose and narrative text. But it is certainly high prose. This is not just Moses sitting down trying to tell a story. This is the most clearly organized section of narrative scripture in the entire Old Testament. It is written with such intentionality that to not mention it would be to lose some of its force. Last week in our sermon on Genesis 1.1, I said that it was important that while it does not happen to be so in our English Bibles, in the Hebrew text, the first sentence of Genesis 1 contains seven words. That's important because seven is the number of completion. 
The second verse, Genesis 1-2, does not contain seven words. It contains 14 words, twice as many as the first. In this chapter, in the first three verses of chapter 2, because the chapter headings weren't there originally, so the entire creation story contains seven days of creation, 21 mentions of the word earth, 21 mentions of the word heaven, 35 mentions of the name of God, 21 and 35 all being divisible evenly by seven. Now, numerology and its approach to scripture will get you into far more trouble than it's worth. And far too many people have made much too much out of finding numbers in the Bible and all this mystic, cryptic stuff. But folks, it's not by accident that there is seven words in the first verse and 14 in the second and these multiples of seven over and over again in this narrative account of God creating the earth. It is pointing us towards God himself As we saw last week, as the main actor, main character, the one who is not only creating, but the the one for whom all is created. There is also a pattern that we will find when we look at these seven days of creation. Days one, two, and three are the forming of the earth. Days four, five, and six are the filling of the earth. But if we were to put those days beside one another, what we see is day one, the first day of the forming of the earth, corresponds to day four, the first day of the filling of the earth. The same is true of day two and five and day three and six. And then when we get to day three and six, there's actually double creation that happens in those two days. Once again, painting this picture of order and pattern for us. So we begin here in verse two with the uninhabitable, uninhabited, dark earth. The scripture reads, the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. This is the verse that is preceded by Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, many think of Genesis 1-1 as being a simple title for the creation account contained in Genesis 1. While that's a valid understanding, and it may be your understanding of Genesis 1-1, I struggle with that because it fails to explain the existence of matter that is found in Genesis 1-2. So the way that I approach this text is to think of Genesis 1-1 as an initial creative act of God, whereby he created what we see to exist in Genesis 1-2. You see, it's important, this is of first order, that we recognize that God created the heavens and the earth out of that which did not previously exist. In Latin, this doctrine is known as ex nihilo, out of nothing. Hebrews 11, the New Testament, affirms this doctrine where the author of Hebrews writes, by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. So everything that we see 
All the stars in the sky, the sun, the moon, the earth, the plants, the living beings, down to atoms, and now science tells us even amongst the atoms there are things smaller than that, were created by God out of that which did not previously exist. And in Genesis 1-1, God brought into being that which had never existed before. But in Genesis 1-2, it is described for us in a, in a way that shows that what God first made was uninhabitable and uninhabited. He says, the earth was without form and void. To be without form means what is uninhabitable. And void means it is uninhabited, that it is, there is nothing upon it. So there are three things that exist after the creation account of Genesis 1.1. An earth that is formless and void. Darkness, and yes, darkness is a creation of God. Nothing existed except for God. And so for darkness to exist in one, two means that dark, God created even the concept of darkness. And darkness was on the face of, and then the third thing, the deep. The deep is in the second sentence there in verse two is described as having water, that God's spirit was hovering over the face of the water. So we see here in the second verse that when God created, he made something, he made the elements by which he would create everything else. There was earth, there was darkness, and there was the deep, the primordial sea. It's important for us to focus in on this idea of the earth being formless and void. And that same phrase is used only in one other place in the Old Testament. It's in Jeremiah chapter 4, which is a prophecy of God, where God, is, where God is revealing the judgment that will come against his people for their disobedience. And he's speaking specifically of the promised land and of Jerusalem. And God says this, I looked on the earth and behold, it was without form and void in the heavens. And they had no light and I looked on the mountains and behold, they were quaking and all the hills moved to and fro. And I looked and behold, there was no man and all the birds of the air had fled. And I looked and behold, the fruitful land was a desert. And all its cities were laid in ruins before the Lord, before his fierce anger. What's described in Jeremiah chapter 4 is what is metaphorically what would happen to the land that the people of God were intended to inhabit because of their disobedience to God. Jeremiah borrows from the original writing of Genesis say God is going to, in his wrath, wipe this out to the point where it resembles that which existed before anything good was upon the earth. So the earth that God has created is not, it, it, it's void, it's, it's, it's uninhabitable and uninhabited and, and impossibly so. Imagine it like this, this is the way one commentator, actually a Jewish commentator, uh, wrote of this subject. He says, what we are to imagine here is the lump of clay sitting on a potter's wheel. That, that clay didn't come into existence on its own, but, right, but in that moment before it is formed, it is simply a lump of clay, nothing else. 
And so what we see God do in Genesis 1-1 is he creates the lump of clay, formless and void, dark, deep. And then the story of the six days of creation is such that God is going to take that which he created, which is not able to be inhabited by anything and make it good to where we could dwell in it. Finally, we see here in this verse, the spirit of God blowing over the face of the earth, written in such a way that there is a great expectation as if we are to, intended to be on the edge of our seats. And I think this is the best way to read Genesis 1, is that it's written in such a way that a person standing in this uninhabitable, uninhabited land, looking at God and going to see from our earthly vantage point what God is doing. So there's this sense of expectation and longing that the power of God is about to be manifested in creation itself. Next, we see the work days of creation. I want to use just the first work day of creation, that day one, that simplest of days where God took the darkness and declared that there would be light that separated from the darkness and show the pattern that exists in all of the days of creation. Look at these three verses. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. Then there was evening, and there was morning the first day. Now, it took everything in me not to sing that, okay? We, we taught that to our children, singing the whole first chapter of, of Genesis. So I want to sing every time. I want to sing it in the King James every time I read it. So here's what we see in, in these three verses. We see a pattern begin to unfold that is going to be the same pattern that happens in day two through six. First, there is the identity of the creator. It is God. In all six days of creation, first and foremost, God is identified as the main character. Once again, showing that it is he who is at work. So he is identified as the creator. Then the spoken word of God creates. In day one, let there be light. God speaks. Then there is a confirmation of the creation. And there was light. Think about how simply this is put. That just in this first phrase, we have God identified as the creator. We have God speaking creation into being. And then we have the affirmation that what God said would be was. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. Now, in the following days, most often this will read, and it was so, day one stands as somewhat unique in saying then there was light in the following days, and it was so that what God spoke happened. Then we see an ordering or a naming or description of the creation that God spoke into being. This passage continues, and God separated the light from darkness, and God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. So there's an ordering, right? Right? 
that God's going to separate light from darkness. And we're going to see that same ordering happen in in the successive days of creation, that, that God is going to bring order into that which was disordered. That which was formless takes on form. And on day one, it does so in the most simplest of ways, just light from darkness. And then in the first three days, we see God actually naming God called the light day and he called the darkness night. Now, only in the first three days do we see God naming. Later, God stops naming and starts describing. But here's what naming does. Naming speaks about the authority that God has over that which he created. It is his dominion. The light is not God. God is the creator of the light. And then finally, each day ends with this phrase, and there was evening and morning, the first or second successive day. But what are we to make of these days? Now, folks, this here is third order. Uh, There are some within modern evangelical Christianity that want to exalt Uh, their understanding of the days of creation to uh, a test of orthodoxy. We do not as a church. Your understanding of the days of creation need to be something that you're convinced of in your own heart, but it is something you need to hold loosely because you should recognize that if in ancient Israel they had varying understandings of this text, if in the early church and in the Reformation and in modern times we have varying understandings of this text, then we need to hold it loosely and not say someone is not a Christian because they don't understand it the same way that we understand it. But again, I'm going to take Uh, from the encouragement from our elders here and tell you how I understand it. Assuming that some of you are going to agree with me and assuming also that some of you are not and that we can still go to the same church and be friends. So what are we to make of these days? Well, first, I think it's important that we recognize that we cannot dismiss the idea that God reveals this truth to us and orders them by day. Because this truth shows up in important ways in other places in Scripture. Let me show you what I think is the most important. When God is giving the Ten Commandments, in Exodus 20, verse 11, and God has set apart the seventh day as the Sabbath, which we will consider in two weeks, he says this, For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So we cannot just out of hand dismiss the idea that God has revealed his creation to us, organized by days, because the Jewish people took that idea and applied it to their very lives. The fact that we have seven days in a week traces back to God's work days in Genesis 1. It has permeated into every aspect of our society that God was at work. Now, again, it's important for us to put ourselves in the position of the original receivers of this. So ancient Israel as Moses is writing to them, is on the Exodus. They've, they've just come out of slavery in Egypt. And while in slavery in Egypt, we, get, we picture slavery in Egypt, and most of us picture like them building the pyramids, right? That's not what they did. Here's what most slaves in Egypt would have been. They would have been farmers. That's what they would have been. They would have been farmers. They were agrarian people. 
And they would have worked very hard for six days from morning until night in the field. And they would have had one day to rest. And the Jewish people applied this idea of God's work days into their own work week. And so we don't need to dismiss it out of hand. However, that does not mean, some of you need to sit with me here. That does not mean that we must view the six days of God's creation as literal 24-hour days. Here's why. Because God does not operate within time as we do. Or no, sorry, God operates in time, but he is not bound by time as we are. There are passages of scripture that speaks to this. One of them also written by Moses. Last week we looked at Psalm 90, which is one of the Psalms of Moses. And just a couple of verses after what we looked at last week, we read this, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night, meaning a thousand years to the Lord may just be a, an instant. Peter borrows from this in 2 Peter 3 when he says a thousand years is like a day and a day is like a thousand years. So the economy of God's time is not the same as ours. So a work day for God could have been mere milliseconds or it could be millennia. And so to my understanding of this text, my understanding of Genesis 1, it does not matter how long the day was. So if you want to come to me and say, Pastor, I believe in a young earth, I'll go, all right, that's fine with me. Well, pastor, I believe in, a, in an old earth. I think, you know, creation and science that we, that we see and geology and, and the study of the stars and of light tells us this thing's been here for millions or billions of years. I said, oh, okay. All of that fits for me in Genesis 1 because a work day of God is not necessarily a 24-hour work day of us. And I know some of you are saying, but wait, it says day, right? Yes, the Hebrew word that is translated day in Genesis 1 is the Hebrew word yom, which can mean day, like a 24-hour day. It can also mean, get this, we have it in English. You know, back in my day, we didn't have to wear masks to church. Now, what did I just do? Did I refer to a 24-hour day? No, I referred to a period of my life. And the Hebrew word yom does the same exact thing. It can refer to a 24-hour day, and it can refer to a period of time. And so I don't think we need to make a big fuss over of it. Now this, my understanding of Genesis 1, has a practical importance, I think, to the debate about the age of the earth. Because I just don't have to debate it. But it's also doctrinally important when we get to day seven. Day seven is one of the things, my understanding of day seven, which I'm going to deal with in two weeks, is one of the most important things that convinced me in my own heart of how I read Genesis chapter one, that I view these as work days of God, not necessarily as solar days that we experience them now. Now, we get really into the meat of the text, the forming and filling of an orderly good creation. Divided into two parts. First, in the first three days, God forms by the power of his word the uninhabitable earth into something good. And I realize y'all are saying, wait, we're still in verse three and we got all the way to verse 25. Uh, this part's gonna go quick, okay? Because we're going to see very simple basic truths in these six days. 
Again, let me read it, day one. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. So God is the source of light. Don't worry about the fact that there's not a sun yet. God is the source of light. And if it really concerns you that that there's not a sun yet in the created order, just recognize that when we get to the end of the Bible, there's also going to be light and no sun. So, So we need to recognize that light can come from God as its source. Light does not require some type of physical manifestation. That God said that there was light and there was Now, keep in mind what we saw about those work days and how these days are ordered as we walk through this. And look every time for God to be identified, for God to speak, for it to be a reality, what God speaks, and then for an ordering or description of these things. Day two. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. Now, sometimes we get confused because of verse eight, because God calls the expanse heaven. And we think heaven, that's where God lived. Well, in the Hebrew, there was a word for heaven and it it carried two meanings. One of the meanings was where God lives. The other is that space between land and the clouds. So when we read on the second day that God divided the water from the water, here's what he created, the air, that which we're existing in right now. He said, well, how is there water from the water? Well, where does the rain come from? Up there, right? And so this is what God does. God establishes a system that still exists today where water will rise and water will fall. And between where the water rises from and the wa- where the water falls from is the heaven. It's the air. And that's what he creates on day two. Then we get to day three. And God said, let the water on the heavens be gathered together in one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so And God called the dry land earth and the water that were gathered together, he called seas and God saw that it was good. So again, the same pattern, except because it's the third day, as it'll happen on the third day and the sixth day, there are two creation that happens during those days. And the first one is that God divides water from land. So that's the water that's the below, not the water that's above, not the water that's in the clouds, but the water that's here on the, land, uh, on the earth, God divides. We know this division as continents and islands versus seas and oceans and rivers and lakes. That up until this point, what existed on the face of the earth was that primordial sea that the spirit of God was hovering over. And now... Land has appeared and God has set out land so that he can do what he does next. And the second half of day three, and God said, this is in verse 11, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seeds and fruits trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. And the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seeds according to their own kind, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God said, saw that it was good, and there was evening, there was morning the third day. 
Now you'll notice that in day one, two, in the first creation of day three, God named that which he created. He named the light and the darkness. He named the heavens. He named the sea and the land. But we get to the second creation account on day three. No longer is God naming these things, showing his authority there. God is doing something different. He is is showing us how things work. So it's interesting in the original text, when you you read this in, in the original Hebrew language, when we get to things like, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seeds, and fruit trees bearing fruit. Here's the way that that actually reads, all right? What God makes is plants that plant, all right? Trees that tree. Meaning that God established something from the beginning that is going to be a cycle that continues. Now again, God stopped naming things. God started describing how things work. And here's why I think that's important. Put yourself back in the position of a uh, an Israelite surround, fleeing Egypt to the promised land, surrounded by people who are pagan, who, have, who are polytheistic, who have multiple gods, and a God dedicated to everything. All right? And what does every pagan culture have? This is the first example that we're going to see of, of many here as we walk through these days. What, what does every pagan culture have? They have a God that they sacrifice to or pray to or do something to for fertility, right? That they would, they would make some type of sacrifice so the rain would come and cause the, cause the crops to grow. And that was very important in ancient cultures. And here's what the second part of day three teaches us. This is why it's important for us to understand what God is saying here. God is saying that there's not a fertility God that makes these things grow, but there is one true living God who created this cycle in the beginning. You see, the creation account is actually affirming something that thousands of years later we look at and say, yep, that's exactly the way that it works. That plants come forth and bear seeds. And if you take that seed and you put it in the ground, what's going to happen? The same plant that you took that seed from is going to grow up. And time and again and time and again, it's a cycle that God created. So we don't have to pray to some fertility God to make things grow. The one true living God has established an order that makes things grow. So now we have light and darkness. We have space in which to live. We have dry land and we have seas. And we have those living things in the land that are affixed to it. So God has taken that which was formless and giving it form. He took that which was uninhabitable and made it where it could be inhabited. And then God is going to fill by the power of his words the now inhabitable earth with good things. Look at day four, starting in verse 14. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let there be for signs and for seasons and for days and years and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so, and God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars and God's set them in the expanse of the heavens to give them light on the earth to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good and there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. 
So day one was God saying, let there be light, and there was light, and God separated the light from the darkness. Now God is going to create on day four a temporary source for that light. Yes, the day is coming, the sun will burn out. And no, Christians should not be bothered by that at all because the Bible tells us that it is so. So in day four, God creates temporary sources of light. So no longer is he the source of light. Now light comes from inanimate objects in the sky, the sun, the moon, and the stars. But notice again, God did not name them the sun, the moon, and the stars. Those are our names for them. It's important to note here on day four that God does not name them. They do not have names to God. Because just like every pagan culture had a fertility God, every pagan culture also had a God that was represented in the sun and represented in the moon and represented in the stars. In most cases, these were dominant pagan gods in Egypt where the, Israel, where the Israelites are, are, are exodusing from. The sun God was their primary God. And here's what the creation account tells us. The sun is not God. The one who created the sun is God. The moon is not God. The stars are not God. The one who created them is God. So he doesn't even name them. He just places them there and tells us what they will do. Day five. And God said, starting verse 20, and God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth, across the expanse of the earth, the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kind and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good and God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. So what did God do on day two? God separated the waters from the waters. He made the air. And so we had waters below and we had air. And what does he do on day five, the corresponding day? He fills that, that area. He fills the sea with all living creatures. He fills the air with birds that fly. And again, pagan cultures worshiped these things. They had, they had false gods that they had carved out of uh, out of stone and out of precious metals who would represent sea creatures. Again, out of Egypt. It's, it's very, it would be very common in Egypt to see um, uh, idols made in the image of crocodiles, a sea creature, or, or idols made representing birds. And God says, those things aren't God. God is the one who created those things and filled the earth with them. Then on the first part of day six, and again, day six is divided in two, and we'll look at the second half of day six next week. He says, and God said, starting verse 24, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kind, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And, and it was so, and God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. The land that God created on day three is now full of life in day six. And again, these things are not God. God is the one who created these things. Finally, in each day, before the conclusion of a work day of God and before the revelation of the next, in every case, twice on day three, 
we read these words. It was good. It was good means it was the way that God wanted it to be. It was as it should be. As God spoke it into being, it became as he desired. Good. Now, we look around our world today and we see things that aren't good. And in several weeks, we'll get to that part of Genesis that tells us why we see things that aren't good. But we still should think about how we operate within this creation that God made. And this was a subject for the New Testament church. See, there were some in a city called Ephesus where uh, Greek philosophy kind of reigned supreme. And one of the uh, popular Greek philosophies of the day was that everything that is created is kind of dirty and icky and gross. <laughs> and and what's, what someone should do is they should reject it. And the more of the created that we reject, the more spiritual we become. And this started finding its way because that sounds kind of Christian, <laughs> And so it started finding its way into the early church, and the early church began to embrace, some people at least, began to embrace this idea that, hey, maybe I just need to start rejecting everything in life. And they were rejecting everything. I mean, they, they, were, they were just starting to, to treat everything as bad in life. And Paul writes to Timothy, who was pastoring in Ephesus at that time, in 1 Timothy chapter 4, and he says this, for everything created by God is good. And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. So Paul corrects this false philosophy that had become uh, prevalent there, even amongst the church in Ephesus, to show that what God has made is good, but it is also affected by sin. And so Paul describes how that which God made, we can claim still to be good because we receive it as God intended for us to receive it with thanksgiving and we pray and we are sanctified by the word. So then if we are committed to uh, an idea of thanksgiving and we're committed to prayer and we're committed to sanctification, then we'll only receive that which is good. Which means this, God has begun, something's happened between what we're going to get to in a few weeks, the fall, which affects all of creation. Something happens between there and when Paul writes, and what happened was Jesus, that Jesus begins a process of making things good again. We still see things in our world that are bad. We still see things not as God says they were in the creation, but we are progressing towards something else. So what? God formed and filled a good creation for his glory and is restoring its goodness through Christ. Now, I realize I'm going long, folks. I'm going to ask you to just bear with me for another five minutes or so. In Colossians chapter one, here's what we read. He is the image, this is Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones and dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Understand this. This world that we live on was not created for you. It was not created for me. It was created for God to declare his glory and his goodness personified in Jesus Christ that by him and through him are all things created and for him are all things created, including you. He is still the main character. 
Even though we've moved on from Genesis 1-1, we've not moved on from God being the main character and we never will as we progress through Genesis. And as you as a Christian progress through the scripture, you must recognize that this is all for God. And he formed and filled his creation for his glory. And yes, our sin has had an impact on God's good creation. But he is restoring that goodness through Jesus. And so it's helpful for us to look towards the end. When, when that which has been so affected by sin is also made new. John, writing in his Revelation, reveals this to us in Revelation 21. He says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Now, quickly, before I continue, some see that as being completely new heaven and new earth. I don't think that jives with what the New Testament is teaching us. Just as we are new creations in Christ, so will the creation of God be new. So I don't think this is new as in like, I went and bought a new car. It is new as in has been made new, right? So what John sees is the fulfillment of Jesus restoring total goodness to creation. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eye and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the alpha omega, the beginning and the end. What God began in Genesis one, he will fully restore and make new in Revelation 21. And what we see from the beginning of scripture to the end is God's revealed story of how he does that, particularly through us. And we'll take up the creation of man and woman next week. But here's what we need to understand is God tells that story and God makes us new. It is, it's just the beginning of God making all things new, restoring its goodness. So God creator of the heavens and the earth makes you new through Jesus as we long for the day that he will make all things new through him. Let's pray together. Help us, God, as, as we try to understand something for that which we were not there to see. And if we had seen it, we would not have understood it because the power of God is far beyond our reckoning. But thank you that your word is true. Thank you, God, that you ordered, organized, made inhabitable this world for your glory and called it good. Let us be made new by the power of Jesus. Let us long for the day that all around us is made new and good too. We believe by faith that you, God, made all that we see out of that which was not. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.